Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Troy, we've been doing a, a few new things this year. We've been playing around with a few things. One of the things that we've been doing is the Patreon live calls. So far this year, we've had Anthony Van Brown, which we had during Pride Month, which I think was amazing. It was a, a perfect segue into to Anthony's session. Totally intentional. Totally intentional too. It absolutely was. It was. wasn't an accident, wasn't it an accident? No, 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 no. We're very thoughtful like that. Actually, Anthony obviously was incredibly busy during Pride Month and he did come back to us and go, oh, just really busy that during that time. We went, hey, what a better time to be busy with something else so relevant for Pride Month. So Yeah, and we said, where's your commitment, brother? Where's your commitment to the work of the Lord? Well, and where was my commitment? Because I actually didn't make it to that session because I, I had an enormous day and was exhausted. That's okay. I understand. But but also, we've had Tara Jean Stevens, and that's yep. been an amazing session. Which was as well. amazing as well, totally unintentional. It was Canada Month. <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> Canadian Month, and we had her on. Amazing. And coming up in April, we've got the ever expert, Dr. Josie McSkimming, who's a fundamentalist Christianity counselor expert. That's going to be fantastic. So, we uh, we do do those as a bit of a, a live check in with uh, with our Patreon subscribers. Those who can't make it along, that's okay. It is recorded that live session, and then it is shared with the subscribers afterwards, so they can have a listen afterwards. So, it's I, I just think they are something that is that little bit extra, as we've said before. It gives people that opportunity to check in and also check it out. Yeah, but you get to interact. That's what I like about it. So people can actually ask their questions and get a you know direct line into the guest and ask those questions you want to ask and hear what they have to say on this issue. Just get that little bit more. And it's not so much about us. It's about the guests and it's about you connecting with the guests. So please come along. The other thing I was thinking is if there's a guest that you really like, you don't have to subscribe to Patreon for a year. You can just subscribe for that month. Come along and be a part and then unsubscribe. That's cool. We're okay with that. Brian, today, this is one of our Our Stories episodes where we continue, I guess in a linear fashion, to talk about our own journey. And we're definitely in the deconstruct phase now. And this is a continue on from episode 53, which was one of your stories. We called it The Cairns Christ, which was talking about when you lived in far north Australia in a state called Queensland. And uh, you were telling your story about being involved in a community but starting to or being involved in a religious community and starting to float towards the edges and taking Sundays off a la Homer Simpson and really starting to move away. Yeah, and, and look, I think it was that very much that point of probably more active deconstruction. I mean, I've been de deconstructing for a while, but it was actively I was sitting there on my Sundays off going, what is all of this? What's it all mean? None of it's making sense. So it was it was an interesting time. And look, when it comes to telling my stories, sometimes I just go, 
who wants to listen to my story? They're a little bit boring. I so, do. I do. Oh, thank Tell you. Tell your story, darling. Tell your story. <laughs> I do. I do find them. Uh, I find it a little bit confronting telling the story because I do think who's going to listen to this. But anyway, if you're listening now, you're listening to this. You know what, brother? I would not put yourself down. That's my job. Thank you. And I can always rely on you for that. That's right. You can. It's very Australian to mock the people that you're friends with. It's just what we do. So if you're coming in from another country and thinking, gee, they're mean to each other. Yes, we are. Yeah, I I enjoy it. It's a bit of fun. So Brian, why don't we pick up from where we left off, which was, I don't know where, but I'm sure that you do. And let's just start telling the story. And then every once in a while, I'm going to say to you, hmm, and how did that make you feel? <laughs> and I might even tell you how it made me feel if I remember. Now, this this is quite a few years ago. This is actually 2007. So it, it was quite a while ago now. But I don't remember where I did finish up in episode 53, The Cans Christ. I've actually got no idea. But I do know that it was around about that point where we were considering moving back to our home, which was Melbourne in Australia. It was um, definitely a time where things were starting to unravel. And they weren't just unravelling, I think, in my Christianity or my faith questions, but, but life more in general was, it had been rocky for a couple of years. There'd been some mental health issues which were surrounded our lives and it was a very complex time two young children so we had a seven and a four-year-old at this time so two daughters and I think during that time we were thinking about the girls and thinking about connection and what's happening for them what's happening about the future all those big questions were coming up but there was a couple of critical points which really led us to to go, all right, I think it's time to head back to Melbourne, to the to the place where family was. There was a lot of family there. I've got an enormous family. But there was a, a couple of events such as a, a death in the family of my ex-wife's grandfather, and we were both very close to him. And that was a, a big life event which made us realise we're 3,500 kilometres away from family when things happen. You're not there. You can't just jump in your car and drive there. You know, you're a plane ride away and you're a lot of distance and we're really beginning to feel that. So I thought, stuff it. I'll apply for a job. I applied for a job back in Melbourne. And I've got to say, at the time, even though I was deconstructing, it was a very prayerful time. I was like, what What should we do? Where should we go? I applied for a job and I got it. Like it was a really, it was almost like, oh, things are falling into place. Maybe maybe this is what's meant to happen. And I'm not quite sure whether I was going, oh, this is God's will. But it's just like lots of signs going, okay, it's time to head back. It's interesting, isn't it, how we often would put it to God, you know, what's your will? As if God didn't really give us any choice, as if we had to somehow tap into his will for our lives and, you know, should I be living in Cairns or should I... It's probably totally up to you, even from said God's position. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a person who relies a lot on my intuition as well. So I, I trust my gut, and I knew it was the right thing. Knew it was time. And before that, we were going to be living in Cairns for all our lives. We loved Cairns, like it was. We had a great community. We had lots of people around us who we cared for. They cared for us. But even that had started to fracture. There was lots of changes in my life. As I said, I'd, I'd deconstructed, I'd been to university, I'd, I'd got a degree, started thinking my way out and experiencing my way out of Christianity. So even that community was fractured and I was finding myself drift more towards those people that were outside of the church walls and outside of my church community because as much as I loved them, I wasn't connecting as strongly as I once did. Were you drinking a lot by that stage? Uh, not a lot, but I was, still, I was drinking. I mean, I, I had not long after I left great big AOG started drinking again. So I, I didn't have a problem with that. But I, yeah, it wasn't problematic drinking. I was just... Yeah, and I don't mean that in a judgmental sense. I just meant it more as sort of descriptive sense because I know that 
people that deconstruct oftentimes will look for something to lean on. And for a lot of people that becomes, you know, substances and stuff. But so, yeah, okay. So no, you weren't. Cool. No, I think I, I lent more on, you know, I was really involved in different justice type groups and the far north of Australia is a, a very high First Nations people population and I was very involved in justice groups for those those causes, those areas about recognition, about reconciliation, all of those sort of things. So that became my community, I think, that I, I focused on. So that probably became my distraction or my new focus area, really. So where was your then wife, and let's from now on just call her your wife, where was she in all this? And was she in agreement with this decision to leave? Yeah, she was. Like it was both. It was both of us thinking it, it's time. Like it's it's just time to go. And as I said, this all happened in the span of a few weeks. So, okay, let's leave. I'll look for jobs. Applied for a job. Got the job. You know, you're packing up a whole house and a family and moving three and a half thousand kilometres. It was no easy feat, but we probably did all of that within about four or five weeks. It was enormous. It was it was such a an upheaval of what had been eleven years that we'd been living in Cairns, part of that community. So it was a big thing, and she was in in agreement. But I think, like the in the past, I've spoken about you know that head of the house. Christian responsibility as a male was definitely at the forefront. I didn't want to be that. I, I'd really struggled with that. I didn't feel ultimately like it was my decision and I absolutely wanted to make it a, a co-decision and I feel that it was. But ultimately you still looked at what's the, what's the head of the house going to decide. Now, I don't think it was quite at that place because by then – I'd, I'd really moved away from that. But that was always an issue for me. I discussed this with, with her before, the, you know, the pressure and the responsibility, the expectation for the decision-making, the expectation that you were the authority. It was always a heavy burden on my shoulders. And I'd had a few close mates up in Cairns where I had spoken to them about this before and about the head of the house stuff. And I remember their response being, you know, I can't remember the wording, but it was very much around man up, you know, step up to the plate. This is your responsibility. And not just around this decision to to move, but around so many other decisions in in our lives. And I just, I always, it didn't sit right with me. So even though they were in a moderately progressive or at least inching towards sort of a progressive space, they were still holding to this traditional view of marriage and the man and the woman and complementarianism. Oh, absolutely. I think that it didn't matter what community necessarily that I was part of during that space. They were always, I think that the undertones were always there. Even the most progressive ones, I wouldn't say the last community I was in pushed that, but that was absolutely there. I think that's a real key tenant of Christianity quite often is that you are the male. It's a very patriarchal system. I mean, that's just the reality of it. That never sat that comfortably with me because I also felt that if I made a decision and it was the wrong one, I didn't want to be the one carrying the responsibility alone for that um, wrong decision or, you know, a decision that probably didn't go the way you'd hoped. Do you think that some women in that space subscribe to that idea because it's just an easier road? I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But sometimes it's like, yeah, you make the decision because I can't be asked. You know, you're you're feeling the pressure to make the decision and you're being forced to make the decision. And yet for the woman in that context, she could actually say, oh, I don't have to make a decision. I don't know. Maybe not. I, I think that they're very much brought up into it, even if they're not brought up in that scene. I think they come into it and that's indoctrinated pretty quickly. I don't know if it's a matter of can't be asked. I think it's a, a matter of if you want to be a good Christian woman or wife or partner, then you must subscribe to this because God wants your man to be head of the house. So 
I don't, I don't know if it's an easy road because I think most women that would sit with it wouldn't sit with it comfortably. Some may, and they may have convinced themselves it's an easier road, but I, I think most would feel quite disempowered. And Oh, no, no doubt. And please don't misunderstand me there. I, I'm just sort of asking the question that for some women, that is actually an easier path to walk. So they don't, they don't resist it. Of course, many will, and many will be uncomfortable with it. So I'm just sort of asking the question, as much as you were struggling with, hey, I don't want to make this decision alone, was it ever thrown on you by her? You're the man, you make the decision. Yeah, it was definitely thrown on me. And and I think she, there was definitely a, an enormous sense of disempowerment in her life. And quite often when it came to decision making, and, you know, let's not forget, she was brought up in Christianity. She was born into it. It wasn't a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christianity she was brought up in. However, it did evolve to that. And I saw it, she was completely disempowered and then further disempowered by our marriage because the expectation on me to be that head of the household. So that really did become a a toxic issue, I think, in our relationship. So when it got to that point several years before we finally divorced, I think she found it really difficult to sit in that co-decision-making space and, you know, just it it became incredibly difficult because I would resist that pressure. I didn't want to make that decision. It caused, you know, fractious relationship. You know, I just, it didn't, it really did my head in, to be honest. You've moved back to Melbourne. You've arrived. What happens from there? It was an exciting time. We'd been super keen to to get back and reinvigorate relationships from years, years before that we'd left and reconnect with people on more of a constant base. I mean, obviously, we'd been reconnecting with them when we come back on holidays, but we're looking forward to those relationships that you make, I think, in your teen years. They do stick with you through your life a lot of the time, and particularly ones where you've gone through marriages, having kids, all that sort of stuff together. So we came back. It was exciting. It was interesting. And we actually came back and lived with my parents while we were trying to decide what we were going to do. And in the, that during that time, we thought, we, we're going to buy a house, but before we buy a house, let's just think about where we're going to stay. So we did lots of house sitting. We went on a professional house sitter's website and spent 18 months house sitting. And basically, we didn't stay anywhere more than three months for the next 18 months. So we were bouncing around. Sometimes in between house sits, we'd come back. And in hindsight, you know, I think that was incredibly disruptive but we, were, we had an end goal of trying to buy a house. But what I started to feel probably about 12 months into being here was that time of excitement, the new being back, started to wear off. And our marriage hadn't really been amazing for a while, but it really started to become incredibly difficult. I did have this sense that my ex-wife wanted to leave but didn't know how to leave. And she didn't work an enormous amount in the first six months that we were back. So I think that financial independence was really tricky. But then she started to work a lot more, got that financial independence. And I could see her starting to to shift away in her thinking and, and a few things changing. And, you know, we do things less and less together. And I, I think that there was... A few times where she wanted to do it but didn't. And one of the big things that happened was my father died. So he died probably two years after we came back. So what year was this? Uh, This is, I think it was about 2009 or 10. Obviously, in the middle of all that, she couldn't leave. It was was just too difficult and there there was a lot happening. But it wasn't long after that that things again just started to get really rocky. My dad never had an interest in traveling overseas, but my mum always had that sense of adventure. And they traveled a lot throughout Australia, but had never been overseas. So after dad died, we said, where do you want to go, mum? We'll take you somewhere just so you can have that experience. And she could have gone anywhere, but she went across the ditch to New Zealand. She'd always had this thing about wanting to go to New Zealand. 
And I'd been to New Zealand a couple of times before this. So I said, oh, look, I know my way around there. I'm happy to take you. And then three of my sisters also went, hey, I'll come too. So it was great. We turned into a bit of a a family holiday, taking mum, really caring for her and nurturing her and giving, giving her that experience that she'd always wanted. Before I went, um, I remember it was a really strange time. I, I did up all these documents, made sure my life insurance was in uh, all in check because I thought if you know if something happened while I'm away, you know I'm away from my daughters and my my wife. I wanted to make sure people were were looked after. It was just one of those weird things that I do. And I remember my, my ex-wife just being really upset, going, oh, my God, what, what, what's happening? Why?" Are you? And I said, no, no, it's just, just me just planning. And so there's a lot of tears and it was a really a big time of upheaval and, oh, you can't, you're going to be away for a few weeks. This is going to be horrible. We're going to miss you. And then about a week into the holiday while I was over there, she just stopped taking my calls. Like every couple of nights, every – I think two or three nights we'd arrange that I'd call around the kids' bedtime, say goodnight to them, and she just stopped taking the calls. And it was a really bizarre thing. She Was this in the time of texts, by the way? Like were you texting by then? So she wasn't returning your texts? Yeah, it wasn't returning text or there was, you know, online message services, whether it was Facebook Messenger or whatever it was, and there was just nothing. It was it was just dead. And I had the pastor of the church we're at at the time was a really close mate and he reached out to me and, and sent me an email and he just said, oh, look, is there anything I can do during this time? Are you okay? How are you holding up? And I was like, dude, what? And he said, oh, your wife's left you. She's gone around. She's she's telling all of us that it's over and she's left you. I'm like, what the fuck? It was a real head fuck. I, I had absolutely no idea. I'd actually felt quite blindsided by it. And I said to him, I, I, I have no idea how this happened. So she's crying at you doing your life insurance and will or whatever as you're taking off to go on holidays. Then she completely cuts you off halfway through that holiday. And then while you're away, starts telling everybody else except you that the marriage is over. It's exactly how it happened. It was really strange. And there'd been no, hey, while you're away, I've been thinking it's been awful. It's just she walked. And for her, I think she took it, at, at, there was a pause point and capitalised on it and really picked up from that couple of years ago or a year ago when she possibly could have left. But, you know, the event of my father dying, I think she would have felt incredibly guilty so, yeah, used that opportunity to leave. Finally, someone spoke to her, convinced her that she should talk to me, and we talked, and I was like, what's going on? She's like, you know, it's, it's, it's over. I hate it. I hate her marriage. I want out. And this, you know, it caused a fair bit of turmoil for both of us. Um, the girls had been told as well. So my daughters had been told they were moving out and moving in with with someone else and I was like oh my god so we tried to so this was all done without you absolutely yeah I had no idea that it had happened um I found this out afterwards and friends uh, spoke to her and convinced her maybe maybe have a chat long story short through a, a series of events we decided to give it another shot and let's try and make it work let's go to counseling You've talked in the past, Brian, about your, you know, owning the shit that you did wrong in that time. And I'm listening to this and I'm, pl please don't hear this as a, as a judgment on you or even a judgment on your then wife. But sometimes when people feel trapped, when they're given an out, they run, they bolt. Do you think that's what she was doing? Totally. 100%. And look, I didn't own everything. I mean, I was, I think it's in hindsight, years after we, we finally divorced that I looked back and went, oh, fuck, that was messy. Or, you know, I could have done this or that differently. I was not innocent in this. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't had an affair or anything like that, but I wasn't the greatest husband. And I really struggled with, 
I think in towards the end, to be completely honest, I, I remember during the time after, you know, we tried counselling, that went on for a couple of months. When she then finally made the decision and said, no, that is it, I am leaving, uh, I remember saying to her, you know, how much I loved her and, you know, needed her in my life. And she said to me at the time, I don't think you've loved me for quite a while. And I don't, I think you'll you'll find out as we we separate, we move apart and you, we both get on with our lives, that if you're honest with yourself, you haven't loved me for a while. And she was right. It was probably a, a, maybe a year later before I looked back and I went, it had been a while before I'd, since I'd loved her. I, I'd had remained as a sense of duty. There's a lot of things that had happened in our life that I did feel a, a great responsibility to look after her, to be there for her. And also with the kids, I didn't want them being part of a, a broken marriage. I didn't want them being a product of, you know, what we know, two-thirds of, of marriages end in divorce. However, I didn't want them to be part of that statistic. I wanted them to be part of a, I guess, part of a family which remained intact. But re realistically, it was probably damaging them staying in that as much as the upheaval and the horrible process of getting divorced and what that does on kids is a damaging thing. It was probably more damaging that they remained in a relationship that really had become toxic. Remembering that this is called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, where was your faith in all this and how was this feeding her response and your response? Was there guilt? Was there just a, a desire to run away? Were you fighting tooth and nail to keep it because that's God's will for marriage? I've been so disengaged. I've been engaged in my church community, disengaged to a certain degree with God. The, the community I was going to at the time was super progressive. Quite often there wouldn't even be a sermon. There'd be like an hour of meditation. Sometimes I remember this one service where you go into a room and you would experience someone doing a Gregorian chant. Um, you go into another room and you'd light a candle and, and meditate, not pray, just meditate. And so it was, it was very progressive and I loved that because it meant that I didn't have to act out my faith in a way that I had been taught that I had to. So what it also helped me do was more deeply deconstruct, more deeply walk away and go, I can put the Jesus and God stuff behind me, but I can still go forward with something that's meaningful, even though maybe I don't see Jesus in that. I don't see a God. I, I don't really know what it looked like, but I also remember it was almost like in the death throes of my faith. I was asked to preach at that church and I bought a message around Christmas and I spoke about... Inconsistencies and contradictions in, in the birth narratives. I bet you didn't. That's what <laughs> I, I would have done. <laughs> I wasn't quite there. What I did speak about was honesty and I spoke about honesty of the Christmas narrative with the whole Santa Claus thing. Why are we lying to our children? Why aren't we telling them that it's all about Jesus? Why are we buying into these Nordic myths of this Santa God? You know, and I remember even at the time being uncomfortable, but I think I was really in the death throes of my faith. This was all within a few months of all this imploding and when I look back on it, I was just trying to convince myself, or maybe I was trying to be controversial. I'm not quite sure what I was trying to do, but I look back on it and was really embarrassed. But I did try, I think, to, to hold on to something. So it was, God, it was a strange time. But I, I think walking away, I, I tried everything. You know, I tried my best manipulative tactics to try and get my wife to stay, saying, you know, writing her a letter and saying, but what about the girls? Oh, my God, kids from broken families. I knew better. I was a social worker. I knew kids from broken families absolutely got on with their lives and could be just as good as the next kid. But, you know, I tried all that stuff because I was scared. I was absolutely terrified of what was going to happen next. So what did happen next? Well, I think I, I accelerated 
my deconstruction. So I did hang around the people in that church for a while longer. This is after she'd left that church? Or was she, or you're going on alternate days or, or how did that work? Yeah, look, there was a, a really weird time for probably six months where we, we were carrying quite a bit of debt. We'd actually, we'd bought a house, but we'd only been in it for, uh, I think, maybe 18 months or two years. And so she couldn't move out. I couldn't move out. So fortunately, we had a larger home where we could essentially divide it down the middle. And she moved down to the back of the house and remained there for six months. During that time, we had just we'd just started going to another church before we'd we'd divorce. Uh, sorry, before we finally had officially and for the last time split, because I think we were just trying for that fresh start. We had we knew a few people at this other church, and it was it was quite a bit more fundy, and it was something that I think I went to for two weeks and I just went, oh, my God, I cannot be here. And I think the reason that we had gone there was that, sorry, the reason that we'd said we'd gone there was for the girls because they had a, you know, vibrant youth group and the girls were, you know, moving into the, the teen and the tween years and we just wanted to make sure that they had a good support system and peers around them. But the reality is I think it was just all part of the breaking away for both of us and separately. I went back once after after that all happened to our old church, walked in there, sat there for the service and felt so disconnected from everybody. And that was the last time I went there. I never went back to the one where we'd gone to together as sort of the the last chance and I think she continued to go there for maybe a few months I'm not quite sure but I I didn't go back to a church at all. I I can totally relate to that I I remember in my last little fundy but pretending not to be fundy Church of Christ going in one day and just sitting there and listening to people talk about being broken before God and singing songs and just thinking this has absolutely no meaning to me. And it was such an emotional in-your-face moment for me. I, I didn't even process it. It was just like, I'm not connected to this. I've got to go. And, and I, it was almost like fleeing the scene. So tell me, when you were feeling that way, was it emotional, was it supercharged, or was it just dead? I think it was dead. I, I mean, I was quite numb at the time because – I was trying to navigate what's next uh, in terms of my life. And I wasn't even thinking about faith or relationship with God or anything like that because I, I think that was dead and that had died a long time ago and I tried to keep that going as well. And I was habitually going to church and I was going to that plug-and-play community. My friends were there. My support systems were there. However, I think being back in the the state and the the town of my birth, I had greater connection than the church. So I was able to to go, okay, that's not my only support or friendship community. I've got others. So I started hanging around with different friends, ones that weren't necessarily connected and still many that were connected in the church because they were still my friends regardless of what they believed or what scene they were in. So that kept going. That that was fine. But over time, I think I, I just drifted away very intentionally. I used it as an opportunity, like, like my wife at the time had used the opportunity to leave me while I was on holidays. I think I used the opportunity intentionally that we'd split. I We had moved to another church just previously trying to make it all work. I wasn't connected there. I'd already left the old one. I wasn't connected properly anywhere. Just go. It's time to actually start your life again. 
Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host, Gavriel Hakohen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our link tree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. It's interesting drawing some parallels because remember I told the story about when I went to Singapore to do some work and it was there that I basically realized I don't know who I am what am I doing in this marriage who is this person and it was after that coming back and church stopped meaning anything to me and and this is you know 10 years prior to you but I just think it's really interesting and and let's let's note that that as your marriage broke down so did your church life and that's the same thing that happened to me but the the interesting difference here is when I had that I fled the country. I ran away from all the connections and people and whether Christian or non-Christian and went overseas. But you did the opposite. You went and reconnected with more moderate people, people that had never been in the church, and you drew on your community or drew on a, a new community to sort of support you. And I think it's really interesting to note that there was two responses. I think mine was pegged a lot to the fact that I had children as well. They were very embedded with friendship groups, obviously at schools, they were embedded in their schools, and they were 100% my priority. What I'd made the decision to do at the time, though, is, and and I didn't realise this till later, but not only did my wife and I divorce, but Jesus and I did, I'd moved on. I'd, I'd left that behind. I'd, in name... I might have tried to still been wrestle with a, a wrestling with it or struggling or but essentially I had walked away from that. I'd used that opportunity as well. It was, you know, it's a slower process and I'm throwing a lot of things into what happened over many months, but I absolutely used that opportunity as a pause point to breathe, to reset and go, okay, it's time to go forward and it's time to go forward like your life was when you were 17, before you'd stepped into the church. And at this time, I think I was 39, 38, 39, when all this was happening. So it had been 20 years of having a life that was in some sort of way sketched around in churches, around the edges of churches. They were definitely my framework and God and Jesus and all of those things. That was my framework. I had to find a new framework. I had to find a new platform for my life, you know, to be able to to go forward. And I did that, you know, and it was exciting in many ways. I was I was single, I was a single dad, but I, I did really used the focus on my girls. I mean, it was all about my girls, if if I was completely honest. I mean, I had made a decision to buy my ex-wife out of the house so I could remain in the house, and I wanted that for the girls. She didn't have the, the financial situation that I did to be able to do that, so, you know, we agreed to that. I stayed there. We both came to a, a fairly amicable agreement about how we deal with the girls. It didn't end up in a family court or anything like that. We had an agreement on on child support. We had an agreement on on care, all of those things. So we could just move to that next stage, I think, of both of us getting on with our lives. And she got on with her life. She was in another relationship. 
I was obviously, I was out there, you know, in the single scene again, which, you know, I loved, I enjoyed. I was able to actually explore myself outside of that and see who I was and what it all meant. But first and foremost, my kids were my my focus and my responsibility at that time. And I loved it. Like I loved being really free. And I started to, I moved through that stage of, of feeling guilty really, really fast. Yeah, well, that was my next question for you, actually. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, where was the guilt? Was there any guilt in terms of the marriage? And was there any guilt in terms of this failed relationship with said first century Jewish man? <laughs> Look, there was. There was for a while. But I, I felt like I, I had to almost work through, well, not almost, I had to work through unforgiveness. And it was, you know, unforgiveness towards my ex-wife, unforgiveness towards other people, but unforgiveness towards myself. I was kicking myself at the time, like, what have you done? You know, you failed as a husband, you failed as a father, and ultimately you've, you've failed as a Christian. But I had to just acknowledge that and go forward. It was almost like I employed the grace message on myself. Um, I didn't, like you, Troy, get a tattoo of grace and show it to Philip Yancey, but I employed grace upon myself. I mean, for me, that was, I think, the most helpful thing in moving forward. It was the ability to go, absolutely, you fucked up in several areas of your life, but you also have an opportunity to make good on that. And you have an opportunity to recreate and in many ways learn. You've, you've got to learn from that. So I don't believe in just cutting off and going, okay, I'm going to now drive my life forward. You have to sit in that moment in that uncomfortable space and go, what have I learned from this? And I learned a heap of things. I learned that I had to operate differently in relationships if I wanted to, them to be successful. And again, that was a journey. I mean, I, I had several short-term relationships over the next couple of years that, you know, between three and six months and then others that sort of bounced back and forward for, you know, a year. There was a lot of things that I had to go, okay, I've just repeated history. I'm not good at that. I've got to change that. As a father... I felt myself being incredibly close to my girls. I, I had I had that almost um, an epiphany on how to be a, a better dad, how to be more present. I felt because there wasn't the stress and the strain of our fractured marriage sitting all around me that I could actually focus on being a dad because I wasn't trying to fix something that had broken a very, very long time ago. I was able to do all that stuff and I guess recreate myself in, in many sort of ways and not feel guilty about the fact that there were several parts of me that I had to let go and I, I had to learn new ways to be me. And, and during that time, I, I think you know this time quite well because you moved back to Melbourne yourself and, and moved in with me for a little while with your wife while you guys were looking for a house. It was funny then when you said then, and, and you moved in with me for a little while, I was going to go, ah, don't, don't, don't tell him that. <laughs> keep, keep Keeping that chapter secret. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and you, you were really good to us as we were sort of getting ourselves set up here in, in Melbourne. Brian, I, I, I want to come back to the idea of spirituality though, and Yes, we're 100% going to be looking back through a historical lens, of course. But at the time, what were you thinking about spirituality? Were you thinking about, oh, I need to find a new expression or I need to find a completely new religion or I'm just not interested at all? What was going through your mind in, in that time where you'd walked away from church, but had you actually come to a point where you'd formally within yourself gone, I am no longer a Christian? Or did that come later? That came later where I, I formally said I'm not a Christian. However, I did not participate in any Christian ritual. I wasn't praying. I wasn't aware of of thinking about God or Jesus in my, my daily life. Um, there was none of that stuff happening for me. I'd chosen to, to walk away completely and just start, I've lived quite a hedonistic lifestyle. 
for quite a while, you know, for the next couple of years. And I embraced that. And that's not saying there wasn't a spirituality there because as I've said quite a few times in other episodes, I was a spiritual person before I came to Christianity. I think I almost just went back to that point of that embracing the uncertainty, thinking I I think there might be something else, but I, I don't know what it is. And if there's not something else, then I guess there's not. But Christianity in its practice certainly wasn't there. I was probably still at that time going, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. But by that time, I didn't believe in any of those tenets of Christianity. I didn't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead, was virgin birth, died for our sins. I didn't believe any of that. But I still hung on to that that label because that was probably that last bit of safety, I think, that last bit of of me for the last 20 years. I remember coming and staying at your place and you put us in that sort of back part of the house, which is possibly where your wife had had been <laughs> at that stage. And you were very you were very pleased with yourself because you just rebuilt the bathroom and you'd done it all through YouTube. Um, and, and I can remember thinking to myself, I could never do this. But ironically, you had all these Christian tapes and CDs stacked in that room. And remember I tried to put pressure on you years and years before and successfully to burn all your secular music. I remember being there and seeing all that Christian music and thinking, he needs to get rid of all this. This shouldn't be here. <laughs> and, and I can remember I was in I was still in a quite a an angry atheist stage and was basically saying to you, this is all bullshit. Da, da, da. And I I don't think I realized how far you'd actually moved out of that mentality because I could just see no, no, cross the line. But let, let's have a let's have a CD burning, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but I can remember, I, I remember finding a copy of DC Talks Jesus Freak in in that room and just thinking, "Fuck me!" It would talk about triggering. I mean, we didn't use that language then, right? But I was totally triggered. But I was impressed by the, by the fact that you had rebuilt your bathroom. I, I did. I, I renovated that uh, that back part of the house, which was a. To get all trace of your ex-wife out of that back room. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I I turned it into a, a fourth bedroom with an ensuite and another lounge room. Yeah, I was very happy with myself. And, and you're right, I did it all on YouTube. Yeah, so, yeah, I can remember. See, I do pay attention. So yeah, you still you still had these remnants of your Christianity lying around. And I remember we met your friend Paul. We had a barbecue at your place, and he and I were like, no, nah, it's all bullshit. And you were like, well, I don't know, you know, and and I think that was more about the idea of a God rather than the Christian God, if, if I can remember correctly. Yeah. But yeah, you were definitely at that point where you were, for all intents and purposes, practically atheist in the sense that God just wasn't playing a part in your life anymore. No, no, definitely not. And and I think for a period of time, and I don't want to speak for her, but I think my ex-wife did as well. She just, God wasn't there. There was an absence. So I'm not sure the experience that the girls had with either of us at the time had any sort of spiritual influence as well. But for me, I, I didn't. I didn't take them to church or anything. As I said, I, I didn't go back. But I think at that time, for them, if I reflect on them, I mean, they would have been, not only are they navigating the fact that their parents have, have separated, and I remember the pain of that time. I remember just sobbing with my kids because I wanted to make it work. I didn't want them to experience the pain that they were experiencing and also the upheaval of living in two separate houses, forgetting shit at the other parent's house and then the, the parent getting shitty because they had to drive to the other parent's house to get a school uniform or a book that they'd left there. They felt that pressure all the time and I tried my best to make sure that they didn't continue to feel that pressure. And, and, and later on, you know, three, four years later, my current partner and I, we ended up buying a house together that was 40 kilometres from the girls' school. When they stayed with me, 
I made sure there was absolutely no disadvantage to them attending school. So I, I would drive them to school every day. I was I was doing insane kilometers at the time and, and dropping them to school and making sure they remain engaged in school. And if they wanted to hang out with friends down that way, then they could hang out with their friends and I'd come and get them at six or seven or eight o'clock at night. I remember being totally exhausted by it, but my central focus was the least amount of disruption in their life. And I, I just, because I think I, I still felt guilt. I felt guilt that I disrupted their life. I felt guilt that I was getting on with my life and restarting with my my new partner. All of that thing that goes along with it, we're, we're a blended family. So we're trying to bring together a blended family. When I look back at it, there's just enormous amounts of of stress that goes with that. But when I, I go back to that time where it was, reasonably fresh in the the first two years I remember I remember making so many conscious decisions around what I was going to carry forward what I was going to still retain as part of my life and very little if any of that was a spirituality I parked that for quite a while and I'm sure there was a lot of unconscious decisions that I made during that time that affected who I became and how I became that person. But ultimately, I made a lot of decisions to leave that behind. However, let's not forget, this was a culmination of probably 10 years of questioning, 10 years of deconstructing, 10 years of pulling each little Jenga block out to see how many bits of those core tenets of Christianity and truth I could pull out before the whole thing had fallen over. And it fell over. One thing that matters to people who walk away is the eternal destiny of their children. What if you're wrong and you actually steer your children away from this? And and this impacted me years later. You know, I had left church long before I ended up having kids and, and left the faith even before I ended up having kids, but, but it affected me. What did you think about that with your kids? Did you encourage them to go to church? Did you keep them from church? Did you encourage them to have their own faith? Did you stand in between them in a faith? What did you do with your kids? And and then when you answer that, could you then tell me where are the kids today in terms of their faith? I, I did not discourage or encourage them to pursue any any sort of thing or Christianity or whatever. I didn't fear because I didn't believe in an eternal destination of hell and damnation. Uh, That was part of my things that I I definitely got rid of. And I I hadn't believed it for a while, but I'd made that conscious decision to go, nah, that's bullshit. And if a God is saying, I created these people to bow to me and they don't bow to me, so I'm going to burn them, then that's not a God I want anything to do with. And I actually don't think it's a true God. So I wasn't concerned about their eternal destination. My oldest daughter at the time was a teenager. This is probably a couple of years after after we'd split, and she made a decision to go and be part of a, a youth group. She would go to church occasionally with my mum, and she would you know, meet some young people while she was at the service. And eventually they said, hey, come be part of the the youth group service. And this was an enormous church. So their youth group services were very much like what I'd, you and I had experienced at Great Big AOG of hundreds and hundreds of kids. It was exciting. It was connecting. I would drive her there and I would pick her up from there. I didn't have a problem with it. That was okay. That was totally her decision. And I never once said to her, no, you can't go. And I would go out of my way to make sure. My youngest, I think she was just that bit younger. She just completely disconnected and didn't give a shit. But I, I think that she is not a spiritual person, my my younger one. I just don't think it's part of her, of her life. Like she's 19 now and is independent, lives out of home. Um, she lives by herself in a, in a, in a one-bedroom property on a farm, you know, with a, a bunch of people and she works full-time and she has a great life and she has great friends. My oldest daughter uh, is coming on 23 and she lives in another state. So she's independently moved out. She, again, has great friendship groups, but no, she's not part of a church. She's I, I don't 
think that she has any core spiritual or Christian beliefs at all. Um, you know, the conversations I've had with her is I think she's a spiritual person. She's She reminds me a bit of myself around the same age, but I don't think she pegs it to any brand or certainly isn't a follower of Jesus. Let's wrap this up then, Brian, because we're coming to the to the end of an hour. And uh, as you know, Medicare will only allow me to bill you for that first hour. Yeah, we don't want a double session. I can't afford that. That's right, yeah. And for those of you listening internationally, we have government-sponsored healthcare in this country, which is really nice. And we, we feel sorry for you if you don't. So, Brian, where where is it all now? How's your how's your relationship with your girls? How's your relationship with your ex wife? How's your relationship with Jesus? Well, there is no relationship with Jesus because that's all rubbish. Um, so <laughs> that's not there. My relationship with my girls is really good. It, it look it went through a lot of rocky stages and rocky periods and I think they would have felt resentment and they would have felt a lot of pain through stuff. I've spoken openly with both of the girls. Look, one of the things I did was I made a conscious effort even during the times when my ex-wife and I absolutely despised each other and I just, I would want to do nothing else but say to the girls, oh, your mum is this and that. I made a conscious decision to never, ever do that. I never once slagged their mum out to them, in front of them, around them. I would definitely catch up with friends and go, oh, my God, this is driving me crazy. How do I I deal with this? But I never, ever did that to the girls. I'm not quite sure that was reciprocated. And there certainly was a lot of teething problems, particularly when I started a new long-term relationship that, I, that I'm in. You know, my my now fiancé, we'll get married one day, is, you know, is an awesome person and she made lots of efforts to involve the girls in her life. But I, I think it was a really tough time. They felt incredibly loyal to their mum. And by having another female presence in their life, I think that they felt that that threatened that, that if they became too close to her, that that would become something that will compromise their relationship with their mum. They felt that real loyalty to her. That's changed now. Both girls are, are really good. And I think part of that was moving out and then becoming independent. My youngest daughter lived with us full time for her last three years of schooling and then moved out. And my oldest daughter, she was incredibly independent and at 17 thought, fuck this, I'm sick of bouncing between two houses. And she moved out with a a friend and lived with her parents. So I think she had some stability. So I I think that that independence from us and being out from under our roof has improved the relationship. My relationship with my ex-wife was really good for many years. Like we would actually talk. We had a a very good co-parenting style. I think that worked exceptionally well. But yeah, look, life, life has gone on and I think lots of learnings from it. If, if we can't learn from our fuck-ups and if we can't learn from those things that are brought our way, then I think that's the greatest life failure. I mean, you've got to be honest with yourself and you've got to be authentic and genuine. And I've done that. You know, I've, I've had a, a life of ex- exploration in that last 12 or 13 years since my ex-wife and I split. I've traveled, I did this when I was single and I've done it since, you know, I've traveled, I've explored relationships and and new friendships, adventures. And I made sure that there was adventures with my girls and being reacquainted with old friends, making many new friends. You know, I'm still one of my own harshest critics and whether that's a hangover from Christianity or whether it's a, a core of who I am. But I think the point is that I don't dwell on it. I reflect on it. I apply my learnings and I move on. If I fuck up, I try again. You know, I I know that innately that my actions are done with good intent. I'm not doing them because I was born of sin. I'm not doing them because Eve fucked up. I'm doing it because I'm human and I'm also repairing and, and becoming a better person constantly because I'm open to that. I'm open to the fact that you don't have to be perfect 
but you do have to make an effort to be reflective and apply that. Yeah, very good. All right, mate. Well, I really appreciate this episode. I think what it's going to do for some people is it's going to show them a trajectory. Oh, okay. There's there's a way to do it. And I think for other people, it's going to help them resonate with, oh yeah, I, I did some of that as well, or I, I didn't do that. Or maybe, you know, so I, I think in that sense, this episode is, is not just you telling your story, but also helping people see the different paths we can take. Because when we get to, to mine later on, very different, very, very different. <laughs> uh, look, I think for what, what it does for me in my story is this is the full stop to Christianity. This is it. This is the last time it was part of my life, besides making a fucking podcast where it keeps popping back up. But besides that, it's, it's, it is the full stop for when I went, you know what? It's not for me. Well, on that note... Unless you've got something else you want to add, I guess I'll say sayonara and see you in two weeks. I was going to close in prayer, but okay, I'll shelve that. <laughs> Probably best not to. Probably best not to because God knows what you'd call down upon us. <laughs> this is very true. All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. And you you didn't ask me how I feel, but I feel good. I feel good. It doesn't bring up any triggers or trauma for me, but thank you. Praise the Lord. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. <laughs>